Hey, I have a question for you this morning, and you, you would see that up on the screen. And I don't know if you have ever heard of this. I heard about this actually a year or so ago. Is this the hill you are prepared to die on? Have you heard of this question? It is actually comes from the military. In fact, uh, one of the soldiers, uh, battalion leaders, had prepared to fight the enemy during the Vietnam War. And prepared for it, but then the general came, his superior came, and looked at the plan that he had, and basically said there are a few elements that are missing, in the sense of, you know, the backup plan. And so he asked the question, because they had to go through a hill and all of that, and so he asked the question, is this the hill that you are willing to die on, because you do not seem to have some backup plans. So that's where this comes from. Now, to our context, here's the question that I wanted to ask. Do you really know what it means? In fact, recently I tried this with a group of friends regarding a particular issue. So I put the issue down and I asked them the question, is this a hill on which you are prepared to die? And there was total silence for a few minutes. Usually a lively, talkative group. They were unusually silent and reluctant to speak. So I was kind of confused. You know, why, why, why are we not talking today? They thought I was asking if they would literally die for that particular issue. And they were quiet. Then I explained what it means, and my friends became lively and talkative again. And so let me define what I mean by this particular question. Is this the hill you are prepared to die on? A yes answer would mean the particular issue is so important to you that you are willing to fight for it. Proclaim it. Defend it. Stand your ground. And yes, sometimes you are willing to risk it all, even your life itself. But not necessarily all the case. There are steps that proceed simply or literally dying for a cause. A no answer would mean that the particular issue is not worth fighting for. Even if you are on the right side. Because doing so will be costly. Such as damaging your interests. Or in some cases, even relationships. So you're always weighing this. Okay, I'm on the right side. I believe I'm on the right side. I'm willing to fight for it. Because sometimes it can be costly. Including damaging some relationships. Are we on the same page? All right, so that's what I mean by this particular question. Are you prepared to die on this hill? Now, in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul has been arguing that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. 
And he would die on this hill to stop anything else being added to it. Such as circumcision, observance of the law of Moses, or any special Jewish holidays. Anything cultural. He was going to die on the sill to stop it. In fact, he endured imprisonments, countless beatings, many near-death experiences, and eventually death itself for this stance. For example, here is what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And you will see that up on the screen. This is something that he wrote before his eventual death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes plus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That is, all, the churches would not add anything else to this free gift of salvation. Now from church history, we know that the Roman Emperor Nero had him beheaded ahead around 68 A.D. So in chapter 1 of Galatians, Paul argued for this belief using the story of his conversion. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he wrote, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, Paul is saying something like this. I was a zealous Jew, circumcised, followed the law of Moses to the T. And thought I lived a blameless life under the law of Moses. Then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And realized that the law did not save me. The circumcision did not save me. The fact that I am a Jew did not save me. Only Jesus did. By grace alone. Through faith alone. For the glory of God alone. That's the story. And he says that in Galatians chapter 1. Therefore, 
There is no need to add anything else to the free gift of salvation. Not circumcision, not the observance of the law of Moses, or any special Jewish holidays. That's a brief summary of Galatians chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, Paul said, That this message, that this message, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone, had the support of the key apostles of the church at the time. Such as the apostle Peter, John, and James. James happens to be the brother of Jesus. Furthermore, To prove that he would die on this hill, he said that he he even confronted the number one apostle at the time, Peter himself, when we behaved counter to, to this particular message. He confronted him publicly. That's how strongly the apostle Paul felt that he was ready to die on this hill. And Paul also said that he did not circumcise Titus, one of his Gentile co-workers at the time. Paul was willing to die on this hill that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. Now here in chapter 3, the apostle makes his case using two other things. First, he calls on the Galatians to look at their own conversion experience. Just as he had done in chapter 1. Second, he uses scripture, specifically the story of Abraham and the law of Moses. The two things the Jewish people revered the most to make his case. So what I want to do this morning in the sermon is this. I want to look at them in the reverse order. Look at his use of scripture to make his case about salvation. And then come back and look at the conversion experience of the Galatians themselves. So, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Found on page 1237, if you are using the church Bible. I want to begin in verse 6. Verse 6. So here we are going to talk about Paul's arguments based on scripture. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And nothing else needs to be added to it. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, Abraham was considered the greatest of all patriarchs and the father of the nation of Israel itself. Now, Judaism believed that God declared Abraham righteous because he kept God's covenant of circumcision and remained faithful even when he was tested by God to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It's somewhat of a works-oriented religion. So Abraham was justified based on his works that he kept the covenant and he also was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. That's what Judaism believed. So the Jewish Christians in Galatia. Now, if you remember that Paul, you know, when, when, you, when you look at Paul, Apostle Paul's uh, missionary journeys, you know, wherever he went, he looked for a synagogue. And that's where he first preached. Because Jewish people had at least the Old Testament, and, they would, uh, and then he was going to interpret all Old Testament based on what Christ has done on the cross. So, he went, so it's possible that there were Chris, uh, Jewish Christians in Galatia. That's one way. The other way to look at it is also the Galatians says that some people came from Jerusalem to look at the church in Galatia. Either way, there were these Jews Christians in Galatia. They are called Judaizers. And so they used to argue, based on their previous religious background of Judaism, that Gentile Christians also need to be circumcised to complete their salvation process. That is, add circumcision to the free gift of salvation. And the Apostle Paul counters this argument by saying that Abraham's circumcision actually came after, not before, his acceptance by God. Abraham's acceptance by God came before he was told to circumcise. In other words, Genesis 15, which describes God's promise to Abraham, came before Genesis 17, which describes circumcision. And therefore, Paul argues that God's acceptance of Abraham was based on his faith in God's promise and not on his circumcision. Let me read that again, that God's acceptance of Abraham was based on his faith and in God's promise and not on his circumcision. So I'm going to look at those two scriptures for you. They are up on the screen. Genesis chapter 15, for example, verses 5 and 6. And remember, at this time, Abraham and his wife Sarah were childless. They didn't have Isaac at this time. They were childless and they were of old age. And God makes this promise to them. So God brought Abraham outside and said, 
look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here's the key verse, verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham believed God's promise. And God counted it to him as righteousness. Now the circumcision comes two chapters later. In chapter 17, verse 10, you will see up on the screen. God says to him, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You see Paul's argument here? Hey, Jewish Christians, based on your culture, based on your previous religion, which is what I used to be, you are making a case somehow you have to be circumcised to to complete the process of salvation. But notice here, God accepted Abraham before circumcision based on his faith. Faith preceded any works. God accepted Abraham based on his faith, not on his circumcision. Furthermore, Paul uses God's promise to Abraham. God makes several promises by the way, along the way. Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 12. And that's where this word, in you, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here again you will see up on the screen here, God makes his promise. At the time Abraham's name was Abram. His name was changed later on. And, and chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make you a great name so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's, the, here's what Paul is quoting. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And using that phrase, Paul concludes that Gentiles are saved through faith, just as Abraham was, not by circumcision, as the Jewish Christians have claimed. So that's the use of Scripture. Now the second thing that Paul needed to address here is the other one. The second thing that Jewish people considered very important to them. That is the law of Moses. Now Moses was a very important guy in the history of the Jewish people. Because you know he, he was the one that God used to take them out of slavery in Egypt. God did spectacular miracles through him. As he delivered them from Egypt. And God gave the Ten Commandments through him. 
And so that's another one that the Jewish people were holding on to. And so Paul tackles that in verses 10 through 14. And if you, ha- if, you, if you have a Bible, look at the footnotes. Paul actually, in these 14 verses, uses the Old Testament six times. Again, remember, they only had the Old Testament at the time. The New Testament had not existed then. And so Paul goes back to Scripture every time there's an issue comes back. That's where Paul goes to, and that's what we are called to do today. If, if an issue comes up, go back to the Scripture. Read it. Understand it. Discuss it with somebody else. Look at the commentaries. Whatever. Before arriving at a theological or a doctrinal position. And I will read some of those today, by the way. So verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For... The Bible says, I think, the righteous shall live by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, let me summarize that, what Paul is saying in these verses. First, Paul says, the law of Moses is a curse. Because no one can fulfill it completely. Because if you choose that path, then you have to follow every single one of those. And Paul says, nobody can, nobody has, and nobody ever will. The result is that people are condemned by it. So for example, we read in that verse 9, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. We couldn't do it on our own, and therefore we are cursed, unless we do all of them, which we cannot. Second, Paul says that Christ became a curse for us by dying on the cross. We read that in verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So here's law that is cursing us. And Christ became cursed for us by dying on the cross. And as a result, Paul continues, In Christ the blessings of Abraham came to the Gentiles through faith. That's in verse 14. So using those two, the story of Abraham 
and the curse of the law and the redemption that was available through Christ, Paul makes this case that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. And he was prepared to die on this self to stop anything else being added to it. Such as circumcision or observance of the law of Moses. Now here's a question. How about you? How about me? Would you add anything else to your salvation? Would you ask, here's the, here's the key question that I have been wrestling with. Would you ask anyone else to add to their salvation? Anyone else to add anything to their salvation? I'm going to actually raise some questions. I'm going to raise questions without answering them. And I have put them as life group questions. Okay, that's an easy way to get out of this whole thing. Not having to answer it. But when you are discussing them, please, 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 no fights. Have respectful conversations with one another. So here are some of the things that I'm going to read. How about some minor, non-essential, and controversial doctrinal or theological issues that you feel so strongly about? Would you die on those hills? Would people holding views different than yours feel comfortable or uncomfortable around you and at this church? Okay? So let's look at some of them. Baptism. There are those in this church who strongly believe in the infant or covenantal Baptism. And there are those in this church who believe in believers' baptism. And then, in fact, recently the elder board had a conversation, a detailed conversation about this. There are so many other issues underneath this. Do you feel strongly? So strong that you're willing to die on that hill. That you feel so strong that somehow other people will be comfortable or uncomfortable around you and here at the church. Would you add baptism to the salvation process? That's the question that I'm raising. How about this Calvinism? And Armenianism. Two theological positions. One raises the sovereignty of God to a higher level. The other one says, no, there is some human response is involved somehow. Would you add one of those to the salvation process? Would you ask others to add one of those to the salvation process? Would you feel so strongly about that you are willing to die on the hill one way or the other? Would other people feel comfortable or uncomfortable around you and also here at the church? 
How about worship music? Singing traditional hymns or contemporary songs that are currently on Christian radio. Do you have strong feelings about this? That your feelings are such that that others around you might feel uncomfortable around you or here at the church. How about the worship center ambience? Should we have the lights off when we sing? Or the lights should be brighter? Should we have stage lights or not? How about the smoke machine? Should we have it or not? Do you feel so strongly about those that you would add any of those to salvation? Would you feel so strongly about somehow expressing those views such that others around you might feel uncomfortable here at this church? Again, you see, for Paul and his companions, uh, the Christians at the time, circumcision and law of Moses were the two important things. For us, here are some of those. How about Bible translation? Are you open to using several Bible translations or just one? Remember the King James Version controversy, KJV controversy? It still exists in some churches today. Now, do you have a favorite translation such that you would be so unhappy if our church decided to switch to another translation? Would you add Bible translation to salvation? How about tithing? How about tithing? Is it strictly 10% or more or less? Is it 10% before taxes or after taxes? Is it 10% of the church? Or can you include, can you and I include everything else that we support, such as missions and Christian parachurch organizations? Or should those be over and above the 10%? Do you have a strong position one one way or the other? Would you verbalize it such that other people might be uncomfortable around you and at this church? Would you add that to the salvation process? That if somebody is not tithing, somebody is not giving to the church, that somehow they are not saved. How about speaking in tongues? Is it a second blessing? That is something that's received at some point after salvation? By the way, I should state that that's the position that the Evangelical Free Church of America rejects. But the Pentecostals do believe that. Some of you are here from Pentecostal backgrounds. Now we have chosen to be an evangelical free church of America church. And therefore we say, no, it is not a second blessing. At the time of salvation, Holy Spirit takes the precedence. And then, here's the other question. Is it a, is it, is it, does it, uh, speaking in tongues, does it still exist? Is it a spiritual gift? Or is it for everybody? Would you add that to your salvation experience? How about this? Body piercing and tattoos. Are you for or against? 
doesn't bother you when, when you see somebody here on the stage with tattoos and body piercings. How would you treat that person? Antagonistically or lovingly? There's a Bible verse. It's in Leviticus. Would you add that to the salvation process? Again, I'm raising these questions because, you know, there are, in fact, uh, you know, my, my wife's family is here from Toronto and they have a son. And last night we were having a conversation and, you know, uh, with this young man who's a senior in high school. And he asked me this question. Why are there too many different denominations? So I explained to him, and one of the explanations was, you know what, there are so many theological issues, and somebody disagrees with one, and they go and start another denomination. And somebody disagrees with another one, and they go and start another denomination. Whereas circumcision and law of Moses were the issues for Paul and his time. These are some of the issues for our time. Now let's move on to the arguments based on the conversion experience of Galatians. And I find that in verses 1 through 5. Paul starts, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You see, as you can see, these are very emotionally charged words. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, very emotional. How would you feel if I said to you this morning, you foolish, middle and free people? I guess I just did that. Perhaps you might start throwing stones or something at me, right? But let me tell you, in fact, I did this once. Once. I'll tell you how it happened, okay? So that you are not leaving the sanctuary saying, oh, what did David, David do? A close friend of mine, in whom I had invested so much time and energy discipling him over several years, was about to leave his wife for another woman. He and I used to meet at least once a month. And here's the thing. At every meeting, I asked him about his family, his relationship to his wife and children, and prayed with them. That's part of disciple. So all these years, he never gave any indication whatsoever that there were struggles. 
Then one day, I found out through someone else that he was having an affair. I, I was truly not a happy camper at that point. So I asked for a meeting. He came to see me in my office. And I did everything. You know, I, I used psychology. I used scripture. I, I kind of, you know, raised my voice. Whatever. I, I, did, I tried everything out. Everything I, you know, possible to help him understand the situation and, and convince him to change his mind and to terminate this affair. But an hour or so goes by and, I mean, whatever I was saying, I mean, things were not getting through to him. So at that point, I put my hands on his shoulder. Please know I didn't, you know, hold his collar or anything like that. I put my hand on his shoulder, look him in the eye, and said, Are you insane? What are you doing? And that's a way of saying, you know, you foolish Put the name. Who has bewitched you? Who has fooled you? And something similar is happening with Paul here. He was frustrated, perhaps angry, even horrified that the Gentile Christians in Galatia were about to do something so stupid. That is to undergo circumcision and add to their salvation. And that would have sent a message around the Gentile world where Paul was you know, doing his missionary trips that Christ alone is not sufficient for salvation. So he pleads in these verses, when I came to Galatia, I publicly proclaimed Jesus Christ as crucified. When you repented and accepted by faith, the Holy Spirit descended on you. In fact, Bible scholars believe that was visibly expressed to them, you know, them uh, uh, expressed by them speaking in, in tongues, in fact. Or perhaps even prophesying. Further, the Spirit worked miracles among you. It's right here. So why are you, instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to finish the work He started, seeking to complete it with your own flesh by adding circumcision? You seem illogical. You, lack, you seem to lack discernment. You seem, you seem to have been easily fooled by Judaizers. That's what Paul is saying in these verses. So let me ask you this question. How about you and I? Is Christ sufficient for you? Is Christ sufficient for me? One author has asked this question. Is Jesus plus nothing equals everything for you and I? Or are you adding other things to this equation? Or are you forcing others to do so based on your personal beliefs? Now previously we looked at some controversial doctrinal and theological issues. Now let's look at some social and political issues. I don't talk politics, by the way. So again, I'm, I, I, I don't. This is one of the decisions that I made when I became a pastor. I will never talk politics. So I'm going to simply raise these questions. That's all for us to think about. And as I do that, you know, as, 
ask yourself, do you feel very strongly about these things? That you die on these hills. And perhaps even add these to the salvation. And then ask yourself if people holding different views different than yours would feel comfortable or uncomfortable around you and at church. First one, Democrat or Republican? If you are a Democrat, would Republicans feel comfortable coming to this church? And vice versa, if you're a Republican, would Democrats feel comfortable coming to this church? Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. Again, if you feel so strongly about any of these issues, I'm not making any case whatsoever. Would people holding opposite views feel comfortable? around you and at this church. How about immigration? Legal immigration, illegal immigration, amnesty for those who are here already illegally. Again, I'm not making any statement whatsoever. You see, nowadays, Facebook has become a place, and Twitter is the other one, these have become the place where people express their opinions openly. Sometimes they are very nasty. Would people feel comfortable? How about Syrian refugees, Christians and Muslims? Pastor Jeremy talked about Syrian refugees about two weeks ago, I think. Would you die in this hell? Would you add this to the salvation? That somebody holding another view, perhaps not even saved, in fact... Uh, and in, in fact, by the way, there's a, there's a group of Christian leaders have written an open letter calling people holding the other views to repent. How about patriotism versus free, free speech? You know that the NFL quarterback, National Football League quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, has refused to stand up during national anthem. Do you feel one way or the other? The person holding the people holding up views opposite to yours, would they feel comfortable around you and here at this church? Here's another one. Flat poles at our church. I have a picture of it. Do you have any views about that? For example, somebody says, you know what, the Christian flag should be on the tallest pole. How do you feel about that? Raising some questions. I have put them in a life group. Have a good discussion. Without fighting. Brothers and sisters at Midland Free, remember what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, which I read to you earlier, and here they are. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
that was his life before Christ. You can see, Paul was a patriotic person. Proud of his nationality. Partisan in his political and theological views. He was a Pharisee. Disagreed with the Sadducees and the Essenes. But listen to what he says in the verses that follow, which he wrote after his conversion. But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the life of a Christian. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. Don't add anything to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking through your word this morning. Father, as I was writing this sermon, that you were convicting me time and time and time again. And I pray that you would do the same with my brothers and sisters here. We are one in Christ. There is one God, one Lord, one Holy Spirit. Unite us in spite of our differences. Because we are one in Christ Jesus, in whose name I pray, Amen.